Welcome to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Here we will discuss topics related to veterinary business management. From small to large animal, this podcast strives to give you the insight and tools to help you improve your veterinary business. Oculus Insights, supporting businesses where great people want to be. Hi, it's Mike Pano. Welcome back to another episode of Hire the Smile all things related to human resources in the vet profession. As always, Katie, how are you? Michael, I'm doing well, thanks. Just uh, recovering from a storm last night that kept us up all night, but, uh, you know, could be worse, could be snow. Yeah, well, that's coming, you know, is early September. And I will say the one thing I've noticed, I don't know about you, is by now, leaves have started to change color. And in our neck of the woods, it's barely evident. So, I think the warm summer we've had is prolonging winter, but winter will come. Mm -hmm. So, hey, we have a special guest, and I feel awkward bringing it up because it's somebody who's very close to both of us. It's Dr. Tova Caldwell. Welcome, Tova. Hello. Thank you for having me. And the reason why it feels weird introducing Tova is not because it's Tova and because she's an outstanding person, but Tova works with me at McKee Panel Equine Services. This is like the most nepotistic kind of guest. But Tova, a couple of years ago, did a master's in leadership at the University of Guelph, uh, which is impressive in itself because she remained a full-time vet while this is going on. But Tova, I was talking to you and we were talking about your research and your findings and I was like you need to be a guest this is really important stuff so Tova let's just start with telling a little bit about yourself and then why don't you sort of tell us why you wanted to do a master's because you just weren't busy enough I know but (laughs) you know just like to add more things to my plate just for fun so yeah a little bit about me well I've worked with you and Mickey Pownell for 11 years now Hard to believe. Time certainly flies when you're having fun. Kind of crazy. Yeah, it really is. So I've been at McKee Panel since straight out of my internship, which I did in Colorado, and have really, uh, my career's taken on a lot of different facets that I never expected it to. I think at this point, uh, you know, I do mostly sport horse medicine, a lot of chiropractic and a lot of acupuncture work, which I couldn't say I set out to do at the beginning, but now is really sort of a big defining part of who I am. But I also have a, you know, a big interest in veterinary wellness and well-being. And I think to echo a lot of what you talk about is like trying to find ways to make the industry more sustainable. And I think that comes from a pretty real and raw place for me because I did go through a big period of like burnout and where I wasn't sure how I wanted to continue. And to be very honest, I think that is one of the big reasons why I started this master's is initially looking, you know, I hate to say this out loud, but if I'm being very honest, looking for a way out of equine practice, you know, just looking to give myself a different road to go down. And then the ironic part is in doing that, I think I rediscovered why I love equine practice and why I don't ever want to leave equine practice because studying what I studied in terms of looking at mindfulness, I, you know, my project really looked at mindfulness and how that relates to career longevity and well-being in equine practitioners. And I think I learned a lot about myself and how to cope with the challenges that I was facing. And in doing that, 
found a way to, to stay in equine practice as opposed to leave. Well, I mean, uh, that's wonderful news on two levels. One, on a personal level for you that you're able to find that path out, and it's great for McKee Powell because you're such an incredible, valuable part of the team. But short of recommending every veterinarian doing a master's on leadership, I don't know what Katie, but I noticed a change in just in you after you started this program and as you're getting further and further along with it, you could see how your attitude about work and the profession had changed, which was just wonderful to see, which is again another reason why I thought you'd be uh, just a spectacular guest on the podcast. So let's jump into it. So the title of your project, Mindfulness and Equine Veterinary Practice, Tools for Health, Well-Being, and Career Longevity in a Challenging Career. I would say my only caveat with this whole 80 page is I think it also can apply to other species. I think you discuss equine and the particularities of equine for sure. But as I'm reading this, I just think of so many companion animal vets that would go, oh, you need to be doing this. This is something that would help. Oh, and totally. And honestly, I recognize that very quickly into this paper is that Although, you know, obviously as an equine vet, my background and my point of view came at this from an equine veterinary perspective, I realized that you could just delete the word equine in this entire paper and just have veterinarian. The struggles that I identified that veterinarians struggle with and the solutions and the whole picture really accounts, not even to veterinarians, to many different professionals, but yeah, it's definitely not specific to, to horse vets, that's for sure. So why don't you just give us a, like a, a high-level overview of the, the paper, your project. And I know Katie and I both read it avidly, and I know we both have a boatload of questions for you. Sure. So the, the project was a, what we call a qualitative project. So I think as veterinarians, we're used to very rigorous quantitative studies and that's where we look for data in terms of numbers and percentages and p-values and all that kind of stuff and this project was not a quantitative study it was a qualitative study and so basically what i did is i talked to um, several veterinarians i think 14 were included in the final project i talked to 14 equine uh, veterinarians we did open-ended semi-structured interviews that most of them lasted between an hour and an hour and a half and we talked a lot about, you know, mindfulness. Most of these practitioners already had a very set mindfulness practice that they had incorporated into their life. So we talked a lot about how they used it, where they felt the benefits were, what they struggled with prior to mindfulness, reasons for getting into the mindfulness practice. And so, you know, we talked in depth about a lot of those things. And then all of that interview, all of that data was coded, basically broken down into codes line by line, word by word, so that they could be uh, grouped into themes. And from those themes, I could identify the problems that veterinarians were facing and how they were using mindfulness to cope with those problems. And so although it's not based on numbers and data like we're used to, Having 14 or 15 veterinarians in a qualitative study is actually quite rigorous and it's considered quite valid from a qualitative perspective. So that was how this sort of study was structured and how it came to be and where the data came from. 
So Tova, I think before we move on much further, it'd be important to define mindfulness. You know, I, when I think of mindfulness, I think of like uh, sitting quietly and, and meditating and not being good at it. So, but I know that the definition is a lot more nuanced than that. So can you just uh, let us know what that definition is? Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think you can't really talk about what mindfulness is without also talking about what it isn't. Because even, you know, to what you just said, there's a lot of misconceptions about what mindfulness is. And I think mindfulness has been, because of the mainstream media culture that it's an attention it's received, mindfulness has sort of been equated with meditation. And they're not the same things. Meditation is a tool to achieve mindfulness. But in its most simplest definition, Mindfulness is really just learning to be aware of the present moment. So whatever is happening internally or externally, being aware of the present moment and not trying to change it, not trying to judge it, just accepting it for what it is. So really, mindfulness is about awareness. And developing mindfulness is learning to develop awareness of what is happening in any given moment and non-judgmentally accepting it for what it is without trying to change it. Does that make sense? Sounds so easy to do. Not only does it make sense, it just sounds <laughs> absolutely easy to do. And it just, I figure five minutes, I, I'm, I got it mastered. Yeah, it's, it's done. You're good. <laughs> yeah, so. Much like any other skill that we would learn in life, Mindfulness, we call it a practice because you have to practice it. You have to learn it. You have to get good at it. Just like being a veterinarian, you don't say one day, I'm going to be a veterinarian and boom, you're a veterinarian. You have to practice. You have to learn to be good at what you do. And mindfulness is the same. It's really the same thing. You have to practice it to get good at it. And there's many different tools and ways that you can start and develop a mindfulness practice. Meditation is one of them, and it's probably one of the more common tools that people use, but yoga, tai chi, self-reflection, quiet time walking in the woods, all of those things can be used to develop a mindfulness practice. And speaking earlier of misconceptions about what mindfulness and what meditation is, one of the biggest things that I hear from so many people is they'll Somebody will be like, well, I can't do mindfulness. I can't practice meditation because I can't sit still or I can't stop thinking. And there's this pervasive idea that meditation is stopping your thoughts. And it is absolutely not stopping your thoughts. It is human nature to think. It's human nature for our mind to wander. And meditation, the purpose of meditation is not to stop those thoughts. It's to become aware of what you're thinking. And to accept what you're thinking without judging it. And that judgment that we put on our thoughts subconsciously without even realizing it is really what causes us as human beings a lot of trouble. And so learning to recognize your thoughts, learning to be aware of them through meditation, sitting quietly with yourself, is the process which you learn to become more mindful. Excellent. So that definition helps me a lot because uh, I, um, as you said, there's there's so many ways we hear we hear the word mindfulness and it's it really runs a gamut. So thanks for clarifying it. 
And it's almost become a trigger word, to be honest, for some people. Like they hear the word meditation and they're like, ah, that's bogus, that's BS, that's whatever. Oh, I guarantee you. Get a group of people together. Yeah, you do mindfulness and like half the room is going to be a big eye roll. Yeah. And it's too bad because it just comes from a misconception about what it actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So out of your research, you really came to uh, four conclusions or key findings from your analysis. So maybe you can just sort of share them and then maybe dig into some of the areas that you find the most meaningful for veterinarians. Sure. So I think the four sort of key areas that came out of this was, first and foremost, that mindfulness can be a very important tool in developing non-clinical competencies, particularly in the areas of emotional intelligence, clinical decision-making, and communication skills. And these are the things that we we're starting to learn in vet school, but they're soft skills. They're not, somebody can't teach you how to do this. You have to learn how to do this through practice, you know? And I think that was really important to this is that mindfulness is really important in developing these non-clinical competencies that we're now recognizing as being imperative to success as a veterinarian. Secondly, mindfulness helps veterinarians develop an idea or an assessment of self, and develop a professional identity. This is particularly important, I think, for veterinarians, and we can talk a little bit about um, who this is. But in this cohort of veterinarians that I spoke to, mindfulness was really imperative in understanding who they were as veterinarians and where their role begins and ends in any particular situation involving veterinary medicine. And this was really mediated through developing self-compassion and developing non-judgmental awareness, which are two really important concepts that come from mindfulness practice. When I was reading your your paper, that area really, really resonated with me of the mm-hmm. self-compassion, the, the non-judgment, because in my experience meeting with vets everywhere, regardless of the species, that is such a critical area. It is. We are unforgiving to ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes to other people without even realizing it. That I think is like the critical, that was really critical for me is realizing not only how much I judge myself. And when you start to look around, you see we all do it, right? We judge ourselves so harshly. But then we have these sort of subconscious judgments on the people around us as well. And there's like a whole area that we can talk about this, but how that affects our interactions with clients and how that affects our professional identity. Because when we're restrained in what we can do as a veterinarian, say by finances or, you know, what the, what the client wants, our judgment of that often comes back to haunt us in making Mm -hmm. us feel bad, you know, about ourselves or about the role we played in that. So yeah, the the non judgment piece is really um, important to so many aspects of veterinary medicine. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible because that really ties into like you know, you know imposter syndrome, which you know, happens just a wee bit in the vet profession. <laughs> yeah, like, just a wee everybody. Uh huh. Yeah. And and not just young veterinarians. I think you know even in this group of veterinarians, most of which have been out of school for many years, they still struggle with imposter syndrome. Right? It's imposter syndrome is very real. And we can deal with it by learning to understand what leads to it, where it's coming from within us, and just learning to be non-judgmental of ourselves. We can accept that we're not going to be good at everything. We don't have to beat ourselves up for that. 
I liked sort of that link between that non-judgment, I mean, not just of ourselves, but of other people too, and how that links back to, you mentioned it already, the emotional intelligence and self-awareness and, you know, just sort of letting things be what they are without attaching extra meaning to it. And it's just so interesting how all of this is so intertwined. Yeah. And I, you know, I think even in writing this paper, I realized that it's like in some areas it felt almost repetitive, but it was like a different, I don't know, vantage point on the same piece of information that just kept coming up in every subject, you know, over and over again. And the non-judgment piece regarding ourselves and regarding how we judge others was so important in terms of developing a professional identity and drawing boundaries and setting boundaries and decision making and how we view the world, you know, in terms of how gaining a broader perspective. When we can let go of how we judge the world and how we judge ourselves, or even just recognize that we're even doing it, which I think is more important than letting it go, all of a sudden you can change the whole situation in front of you. You know what that sounds like? I was just as you were describing that, uh, I was just reflecting because I was just like, what does this look like? So you have a new vet, you know, they start their career mid 20s, let's say late 20s. But what you're describing, you know, it's sort of like I'm in my late 50s and, and you get people saying, oh, the older I get, the happier I get. It's almost like you're sort of, I wouldn't say accelerating, but you're appreciating what comes with age that some things just don't matter. Don't judge people so much because you don't know what they've been through. You have a lot more empathy for other people's situation. It's not necessarily wisdom. It is, actually. It's is wise. It? Okay. it is. It is wisdom. It's being wise about what's actually happening in the world. But it's like fast-tracking. Like, okay, it, it's taken me 30 years and the school of hard knocks and leaving a mess behind me at times to to learn these lessons. And it's almost like if I had the sense of this when I was in my 20s to develop this mindfulness, to be this quiet in the storm that absorbs without judging, oh, I'm just thinking of how much easier life would have been. Oh, I can totally agree. And, and I can't tell you, one of the most interesting people I spoke to in this research was as I said, 14 out of, or 13 out of 14 were actually very seasoned practitioners, had been out of school between 10 and 30 years, and had gone through what you just described. You have to like kind of get pulled through the fire, figure out what you did, and then you develop this wisdom, right? But I spoke to one intern veterinarian who had developed mindfulness in her pre-veterinary life, so before she had ever even come to vet school, just in terms of learning to deal with anxieties and different life challenges that she had faced before she went to vet school. And her perspective, all I could think of as I was listening to her talk was, you are so fortunate to have this perspective now, you know, mm -hmm. and thinking of how different it would be if we had all graduated with that perspective on you know, like she was working in a very toxic work environment as an intern with a lot of really ego driven, volatile surgeons and screaming and talking down. And, you know, and she was like, being mindful allows me to see those people for who they are and see that they're reacting and not actually thinking. 
mm-hmm. and that their emotions and the way they are reacting actually has no reflection on who I am as a person or what I do. I'm still yeah. going to do a good job and it doesn't matter what these people say. And she's like, it's allowed me to form relationships with all of them and work with them despite how they behave at work. And the fact that she was able to separate her value and her worth as an intern veterinarian away from the way that she was being treated by these very big egos, it was just outstanding Mm -hmm. to listen to her, you know? And she was like, every time I'm mindful, I'm building my own reserve Mm -hmm. because in that environment, nobody else is there to protect me from the stresses of that environment. And so Mm -hmm. I have to do it myself. And that's what mindfulness does for me. And I was just like blown away (laughs) listening to her wisdom at this 25, 26 year old in one of the worst working environments I've ever heard explained to me. Mm -hmm. And like to see how she was navigating that with mindfulness and to like, we all know people that didn't survive that, right? Like Mm -hmm. in, in, in a career way or came out of it so battered and bruised, they could barely function. And it was just incredible. So developing that wisdom on a fast track is exactly what I think this is. <laughs> right, right. So we sort of, I know we, uh, and I knew this would happen because this is such an expansive, there's such a wide variety um, of information. So we, we started talking about the, the couple of areas that you thought were the most important to the vet profession. Is there anything else? Well, yeah, there was a couple of other sort of key findings. I think we went over the first two before we got sidetracked. And I think the third and fourth one are equally important, and we can choose which ones we want to talk about. But the third sort of key finding here in this study was that mindfulness is really helpful for managing the transition between work and life. And I think in veterinary medicine, work-life balance is like the quote-unquote buzz term you know, it's in every job ad, it's in every, you know, whatever, that, that, that's what people are looking for. But what is that? And how do you actually find that, right? And I think there was, you know, really good evidence here to suggest that mindfulness can help with that integration and help with uh, finding that sort of elusive, quote unquote, balance between work mm-hmm. and life as a veterinarian. Because I think adding work-life balance and mindfulness in a sentence is going to get like lots of eye rolls in a group of veterinarians. <laughs> it, it, unfortunately, because I think everybody has the wrong impression of it. Mm-hmm. And this is why I liked your research so much, because it really shows the benefit and value of it. And so I wanted to interject because I know there's people going, I'm so damn tired of hearing about work-life, work-life balance. balance. Yeah. <laughs> get off your ass and work, blah, blah, blah. It was interesting, uh, the distinction you made between those terms, so work-life balance and work-life integration. And I think that calling it integration sort of is a more authentic way of talking about it. It is, yeah. As much as you're good at compartmentalizing work versus home, it's not like work thoughts don't enter people's brains outside of work time. So, Well, exactly, When I went into this, like talking about this with people, I expected all of these veterinarians to come back and say to me, I have a work-life balance. Mm -hmm. I've found out how to make it work, right? Because I think we all have this like 
preconceived notion that if we can just find a work-life balance, if we can just do it, then we can continue in this career and we can do this job, you know? Mm -hmm. And none of them said that. In fact, they all said they don't have a great work-life balance. But what mindfulness allowed them to do, and again, it comes back to what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is being in the moment. It's allowing a moment to happen without judgment and without trying to change it. And so what, after I coded all of this data, the picture that came to my mind of work and life is that they're, they're spheres. We have our work life sphere and our, and our home life sphere, you know, and personal life. And they, they integrate with one another. They overlap. They come and go. But when we need to transition between them, if we can be in the moment, and this is what people, you know, explain to me, you can maximize the joy you get from both of them. You can either be working and being in the moment of work, or you can be enjoying your personal life. And you can flawlessly or easily flip and flop between them without that resentment and without that judgment, because you're just doing what you need to do and being in that moment. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I read that part and I was like, oh my gosh, what a holy grail to be able to go back and forth. And it's not compartmentalizing it. That's not the right word. But being in the moment, mindful, regardless of the circumstance. And it was sort of like, I would like to be able to do that because I suck at it. So I, I thought that was cool. Yeah. And all of these people really said that it really allowed them to maximize the joy in their personal lives because they weren't so distracted mm -hmm. by going back and forth. And so I thought that was so important. Cause you do talk about one thing and that I think is associated with this is like the rumination yeah, where you just have your thoughts going all the time. And I was reading that. And I was like, boy, that's me. I mean, I just can't shut my mind off and I'm thinking about things that happened earlier in the day, earlier in the week. It's just, an endless loop of the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rumination is, um, I think it's something that we all type A people, which we seem to accumulate a lot of those in veterinary medicine. But rumination is, a, yeah, it's a coping mechanism, right? It's how we deal with that dissonance between what we did, what we think we should have done, what we expected we should have done instead. It's how we cope with all of those things that we're inundated with in a day. And it, it's interesting because rumination has been, if you look through the literature, it's been highly linked with depression. So coexisting with depression or predicting depression in non-depressed individuals. And so rumination is really important because it really, it increases our negative effect it really causes a lot of stress and anxiety and it's highly correlated with levels of burnout and depression in working professionals. So rumination is really an important topic. And what came out of this research is that there's kind of a, key, a couple of areas where mindfulness can help with rumination. First of all, it helps us recognize when we're doing it, <laughs> which is sometimes hard. You don't even realize you're down this like monkey mind train of just thinking and stressing and oh god what if this happens or what if that happens or what if should have I done this and you know blah 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 so it helps you recognize when you're doing it and I think that's the most important step 
And then when you recognize when you're doing it, and you can bring forth some of that sort of non-judgmental self-compassion that we talk about, that mindfulness is so great at helping you discover in yourself, then you can kind of go, wait a minute, what's the story I'm telling myself here? And how much is that true versus, you know, like, what's the truth versus reality here? Yeah. And and I think that's where, you know, bringing that non-judgmental compassion and going, okay, wait, what am I doing? Why is this happening? Where is this coming from? <laughs> and how true right. is this actually helps you start to curb that. And unanimously, all of these participants reported that mindfulness helped them curb that ruminative thinking and interrupting those distressing thoughts once they start, you know, and recognizing them and stopping them and and being able to rationalize with yourself a little bit to be like, okay, this isn't healthy for me or this isn't actually what happened. I have no evidence to say that this will come from this, you know, and just being able to think more objectively about them. And in curbing those ruminative thoughts, it, that extended into so many other things, resilience um, in terms of not, you know, less stress, less anxiety, less uh, mental duress, just from thinking about that, how it has extensions into well-being because you're spending significantly less time ruminating and then you can actually enjoy whatever it is you were supposed to be doing in that moment <laughs> rather than wasting it with ruminating you know there's a lot of benefits to learning to be aware and curb that ruminative thinking because it can be quite detrimental it's very highly correlated with burnout so did we cover all four findings we keep on going because <laughs> they're fascinating but i'm like did we cover everything um no i don't think we did yet but that's okay i think we we still didn't get to like the sort of the fourth main finding in this which is what you know mindfulness is really important in improving subjective well-being and resilience which correlates highly with career longevity mm -hmm. For, for this population of equine veterinarians, which I think can be extended to all mm -hmm. veterinarians, really. So I think that was a big one, you know, is that there was really a lot of overwhelming support to say that a mindfulness practice can really support your career and your well-being and your desire to stay in practice. Which is a challenge in our profession. So, yeah, obviously this would be a huge win if, if more people could embrace this. Mm-hmm, for sure. So a question I have then. So often, and, and I know this will lead to a question I know Katie wants to ask, but you're in a group practice, there's other vets, other technicians, vet assistants. How would one influence a colleague to explore mindfulness? Yeah, and that's a hard, <laughs> that's something I struggle with, actually, <laughs> my own self. I think the biggest thing is understanding that Everybody has to be ready to take on something like this. You can't force it to anybody. People have to be at a point in their personal life and their career where they're looking to be open-minded to other ways of doing things. And so, you know, sometimes I, like I'm so passionate about this stuff and I, I, when I look around and I see where it could help so many people and I want to be like, you should do this, you should try this or you should do yoga or try meditating, you know, and, and you can't, you can't do that. But I think 
I try to just talk about my experiences and when people ask me. And I think by extension, it radiates into the people around you and people kind of go, huh, maybe I should try that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the way to do it. And then when people are ready to come and talk to you, then you can have that conversation. But much like the eye rule in the room, when you talk about mindfulness, you get that face-to-face too. So you have to wait for people to be ready. As you said at the very beginning of the study was, you know, more qualitative than quantitative. And then just that mindset of veterinarians because of our scientific training. But I think anybody who is, you know, yeah, we're struggling, but we're doing what society is telling us to do. So there's obviously something wrong with us. Instead of taking that step aside and going, actually, maybe society is wrong and how we're doing things. And maybe that's what I have to look at. And I guess, as you said, we all have to find our path to that. Yeah, yeah. We do. There's something to education and informing people without pushing it, too, you know? And and I think I'm still struggling to find what that right balance is in terms of giving, making sure people have the information and having the tool in case they choose to use it, but not pressuring them to use it. My question was sort of along the lines of how do we deal with practice owners who might be those sort of old guard, eye roll, I worked all night, so why doesn't everybody else work all night, every night type veterinarians? But I think figuring out a way to, like you said, educate people on mindfulness so that it's not at rock bottom that they discover it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's it's so hard to climb out of that hole, but to have it be a part of the toolbox, even in a, just an awareness way. So when these things they can wreck, okay, I understand what ruminative thoughts are, or, you know, I'm, I'm giving myself away too much to my clients or whatever. And hey, this is what Tova was talking about. Or, you know, this is this is might might be where mindfulness comes in. Because mm-hmm. Mike and I have discussions with people all the time who aren't ready to see the light yet. And you're like, this, this is so plain to us, but people are in such a state or, you know, they've been telling themselves a story about a situation for so long that that's what it is to them. And it's really hard to, mm-hmm. to flip it around. So I'm always very sad when people's revelations come because they're at 5% of resiliency or, you know, they're, they're in such a low place. So I'd be really interested. And I know your study wasn't how do we make this happen in practice necessarily, but it'd be really interesting to think of ways or research ways to give people that gateway this sort of gateway into mindfulness and say, when you're ready, come see me, you know, like a guru Tova type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) Monday morning, 7am yoga or something like that. But but you know what I mean? I'm being a bit facetious, but it's that it's catching people before they go down that spiral. I'd be really interested to figure out how we can bring that to people. Yeah. And I have thought so much about that. And you see the spiral. Once you're aware of the spiral, then you start to see it in other people, mm-hmm. right? And it's like watching a slow moving train wreck sometimes. And you're like, okay, just watching. And, and you know it's happening. But I've come to accept and understand that you can't, no matter how much you want to help and how much you want to interject and how much you want to do things, you can't change people until they're ready. And you have to just let that process play out. And when they are ready, then you jump into action. (laughs) But you can't, I I don't think you can, until that person is ready, I don't think that you can necessarily 
necessarily always interject. No. If that makes sense. That might not be the happy, best answer. But I think it is having that non-judgmental compassion for where they are in their journey. You know, you talked about how, you know, when you talk to other folks about this, you're able to use your own experience. And that's so valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being able to recognize, you know, I've been there as well. I think that's a huge part of it. But you don't necessarily want people to have to have had that experience. You know what I mean? Like, no, totally. <laughs> so, I, I, I don't you know making it part of the lexicon, right from the beginning. I feel like high school should have life skills class, where people mm-hmm. learn things like mindfulness, and people learn emotional uh, intelligence and self awareness and all that stuff people don't have a chance to build up this sort of prejudice or chip on their shoulder about what all this means. So then when they recognize that they need it, they can pop right in. But I mean, that's a, a unicorns and rainbows, fluffy clouds type way of looking at it. Well, you gotta start somewhere. No, but it isn't actually, because I actually think one of the most important things for me that came out of this study was actually not the success of mindfulness. Um, that might sound funny to say, but one of the most important things that I really picked up on from all of these conversations was highlighting the problems that we face in terms of doing some of these preventative mm-hmm. measures in, say, vet school. We know that 20 years out, here's this group of veterinarians that are struggling with these problems. And I don't think these problems are indicative of just this group of veterinarians. I think many people listening to this will be able to relate to a lot of this stuff. Um, It wasn't actually that mindfulness is is the tool. Mindfulness is a tool to combat these problems. But maybe this preventative, we need to look at it differently, just like you said. So as to not be trying to catch them in a downward spiral, but give them the tools before they even start the downward spiral. And to me, that starts in vet school or undergrad or high school even. And And I think that, you know, back to your question about what can we do when we see this happening, there are definitely tools out there that are available in terms of offering some courses and just saying like, hey, would you be interested in listening to this? Like the mindfulness uh, state-based stress reduction course, which is a really popular one. And there's many versions of that. And having that available for people in practice, you know, now that we're here, we've not caught them in vet school, but we're here. So, hey, would you be interested in doing this? You know, we offer this course. Just listen. You don't have to do anything. Just listen, you know? And I think that that there's a lot to that in terms of just having tools available from a preventative, but also from a in-the-moment perspective. I think that's a great place to stop. We could talk literally for hours on this. I mean, as I was going through uh, your paper, I'm like, how are we going to make this fit into a 45, 60 minute podcast? Like we could literally have a 10 part series on this. So Tova, thank you very much for sharing this. What's the most impressive is that you've uh, done this further education, done a master's on something that you're passionate about, and you want to share it with the profession to help it. So I think hats off to you for that. Mm -hmm. That's exceptional. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to follow up about some of the other things that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Well, uh, you know what, I think we may have to do a part two, because there's a lot of great stuff on this. So I think the professional identity bit is really important in terms of like practical stuff. But yeah, anytime. We know where you live. Uh-huh. You do. <laughs> right. Thanks, Thanks both very much. See you. Okay. Thanks. Take care. 
Veterinary practice would be so much easier if all we had to do was treat our patients. Instead, we also have to deal with the realities of running a business, keeping and retaining staff, attracting new clients, and maintaining profitability, to name just a few. Veterinarians also struggle with managing the always-on mentality clients expect of them, while trying to maintain a livable work-life balance while also managing student debt. When you add in the uncertainty and volatility of the world outside our vet practices, the business aspect of veterinary medicine can take away the pleasure of being a veterinarian, practice owner, or manager. Fortunately, we have a solution. Advice by Oculus provides online personal performance coaching and business advisor sessions that are convenient, accessible, and confidential for the veterinary profession. Personal performance coaching can help anyone develop confidence, motivation, and engagement. Your coach helps you identify what is holding you back and how to overcome these obstacles so you can reach your full potential. If you are struggling with your career and the negative impact on your personal life, personal performance coaching is for you. We all know it can be very lonely leading and managing a business. Often we find ourselves having to make decisions that can have a significant impact on finances, staff, and the overall health of the business without the confidence that we have considered all options before making our decisions. Having a personal business advisor with the experience and education for veterinary business management can help you clear a path to business success. We have been in your shoes and know what it takes to move forward. Advice by Oculus. Consider it like telemedicine for your business or career. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.